listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured number 57. And to start off our news roundup, the president just signed an executive order barring discrimination against uh, on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity, adding that to a number of uh, extant civil rights protections in federal law. And he is essentially extending these protections um, in parallel to legislation that is currently pending, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. There are actually ongoing concerns about that Uh, bill because people say that in the wake of the Hobby Lobby decision in the Supreme Court, the uh, anti-discrimination protections, specifically the religious exemption, are not strong enough. So while that is on uh, sort of on the back burner, uh, Obama has moved ahead and signed this executive order that would apply uh, just to federal contractors. Nonetheless, it is uh, the largest uh, such expansion of civil rights protections for the LGBT community nationwide. It'll affect uh, an estimated one million workers, and. Um, it's worth noting that uh, you know this uh, federal uh, move is making up for a huge deficit that we see in civil rights law on the state level. In most states, there are no special protections uh, for uh, LGBT uh, communities. And it's worth noting as well that even this executive order does still contain some limited religious exemptions, but it has remains to be seen uh, how effective it will be in actually um, eliminating workplace discrimination. On a related note, uh, there's another interesting employment uh, discrimination case going on uh, back at Hobby Lobby. This time it's not about reproductive health care. Um, a trans uh, female employee, Meg Somerville, who I spoke to uh, a few days ago, um, is currently pressing a case with the Illinois Human Rights Commission. Uh, She works at a Hobby Lobby in Aurora, Illinois, and she has been barred by the management from using the appropriate bathroom. So, um, you know, even though she uh, went through her transition uh, several years ago, and her co-workers have actually largely been supportive uh, thanks to Hobby Lobby's corporate policy. They are basically saying that she cannot use uh, the women's bathroom. So it's caused her an enormous amount of hardship and emotional trauma, and she is now pressing her claim before the Illinois Human Rights Commission. And it's worth noting as well that Illinois does have protections uh, against discrimination on the basis of gender, uh, sexual orientation, and gender identity. Nonetheless, Hobby Lobby continues to make the case that it is not in violation of the law. So we'll see how that plays out. We're going to hear a quick clip from Megan Somerville talking about her experience and why she's uh, making her case before the Human Rights Commission. The day after I, you know, legally changed my name, uh, I went back to work, and at that time, I was told that I would not be allowed to use the women's restroom, even though, you know, I had legally changed my name, I was in the process of changing, you know, the gender marker on my driver's license and everything, I would still not be allowed to use the women's restroom. I was devastated, and it was a knife to the gut, you know, an insult to me. You know, the the proof of the discrimination was in February of 2011, I was written up for using the women's restroom. I was supposedly been witnessed, you know, three times by three different employees in the women's restroom. You know, and that was when I finally decided that I needed to seek, you know, legal counsel and fight this. It was truly devastating, and I felt like somebody had just basically eviscerated me. It, it, my whole world turned upside down. I'm in a very unique position being, you know, a transgender blogger that I do get to speak with through emails and Facebook and stuff like that with with other transgender individuals all over the country and all over the world. But unfortunately, this is not a isolated incident. There are people that are, are facing this, you know, in, you know, this country, in other countries around the world. And that was Megan Somerville, Hobby Lobby employee. And she's currently hoping that uh, Hobby Lobby's discriminatory policies against trans employees will be struck down by the Illinois Human Rights Commission and perhaps nationwide. On a 
Well, somewhat related note, I guess. Last week, hundreds of employees from Demula's Market Basket grocery store chain in Massachusetts protested outside the company's Tewksbury headquarters, demanding that the ousted CEO be returned. Now, that's kind of an interesting uh, story, right? The employees are supporting the former CEO who was ousted in June by the board, and the employees have given the new CEO an ultimatum that they will work for Arthur T, as they say, or no one at all. And they walked off the job on Friday, despite threats that they'd be fired. I discovered this story in an article on Fortune.com, not exactly the place you'd expect to find sympathetic pro-worker coverage, but it was actually an article arguing for workers to have some input in who runs the company. Um, They have examples from other companies like W.L. Gore and Associates, who make Gore-Tex, a uh, weatherproof fabric, about their solicitation of input from employees on who their new CEO should be. This is an interesting struggle that we'll no doubt try to keep up with here, but it is always fascinating to me to see when sort of the business press thinks that workers have a point. Um, Perhaps it would be better, and you do learn something about somebody's management style by how they treat the people beneath them. Um, We know that, for instance, Walmart workers had a lot of positive feelings about the old Walmart leadership. Um, I've talked to Walmart workers who, you know, feel like Walmart went to hell after Sam Walton died. Talked to Walmart workers who feel like Walmart went to hell after Helen Walton died. Um, So... It's, it's an open question, right? Should workers get to pick their boss? What do you think? Let us know at uh, hashtag belabored or at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. In Chicago, postal workers are delivering an angry message to Staples across the country this week with a a massive boycott uh, and protest campaign against their new sort of public-private partnership with the U.S. Postal Service. Um, The American Postal Workers Union is calling for uh, a boycott of the of Staples because of its so-called retail partner expansion program. Uh, What this venture does is it creates new postal outlets at Staples retail stores, um, which is all well and good uh, until you realize that the employees providing those services are not actually employees of the U.S. Postal Service. They are Staples employees who make a lot less per hour and generally work under worse working conditions, have fewer benefits and protections, etc. So, um, you know, what the Postal Workers Union basically said is that this is a transparent, union-busting, anti-worker activity, and it's being done under the guise of expanding services for the public. So rather than, um, you know, sit by and watch their jobs basically be farmed out to retail workers who are uh, much worse paid and bringing down working conditions for everyone in the industry, the unions saw this as an opportunity to mobilize some of their uh, fellow union workers uh, around the country and to strike back and say that, uh, you know, people will not uh, stand for Staples uh, working for a sort of quasi-privatization plan in tandem with the U.S. Postal Service. They recently uh, were joined by the American Federation of Teachers, which voted recently on a resolution to join the boycott, and they've received support from other unions as well. And This could actually be a big deal, unlike many boycotts that are largely symbolic. I mean, teachers spend hundreds of dollars by one estimate of, uh, of their own money, uh, buying school supplies for their students. And so this could actually hurt Staples' bottom line. Um, and, you know, the thing is, Staples as a company has not been doing terribly well financially in recent months. So they might actually feel like, you know, maybe they should put this plan aside and walk back uh, rather than potentially sacrifice business if they continue with this plan. And they did actually last week announce that they were ending... Um, uh, one of, you know, the newest incarnation of the Retail Partner Expansion Program, but it is maintaining the overall structure of this program, which is that, you know, they will continue to have some U.S. Postal Services uh, uh, deployed at Staples stores uh, while not using actual postal clerks. So they're keeping up the heat. Uh, they had a major rally in Chicago on Tuesday, and we will keep on reporting on the progress of that campaign. And in the meantime, don't buy Staples! On the other hand, if you live in Bloomsbury, New Jersey, you could, in fact, go to the Subway Sandwich store and not feel bad about it because workers at a Subway Sandwich location in Bloomsbury on Friday voted in favor of joining the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Um, These are 13 workers, so it's a small bargaining unit. 
um, employed by the travel center company Pilot Flying J. Interesting side note, Pilot Flying J is the family business of the Republican governor of Tennessee, Bill Haslam, who was accused by the UAW of interfering in their election at the Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga. You remember that. Um, the company is run by his brother, who also happens to be the owner of the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, that's... Well, anyway. Um, in February, a group of cashiers, gas station pump attendants, and maintenance workers at the same travel center in Bloomsbury had voted to join the RWDSU, so they already had somewhat of an in there. But it is, in fact, rare that these kinds of um, fast food companies, subway locations have been part of the um, rolling one-day strikes that have been held by fast food workers across the country. Um, and it is pretty rare that we see these kinds of businesses, especially with that small uh, group of workers, win union elections. So this is impressive. Congratulations, uh, Pilot Flying J subway workers. Let us know if your subway or other fast food franchise in your neighborhood is voting on Or maybe you live near this particular subway outlet. Or maybe you work at this particular subway outlet. Anyway, we'd love to hear from you. As always, you can reach us at hashtag belabored on Twitter or email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. And speaking of workers that have had a hard time organizing in the past, this week we take a look at what it's like to organize in the South. This is kind of an an endless conversation that the labor movement has been having for about 100 years about how impossible it is to organize in the American South. It's just so horrifying and terrible down there. Well, we're going to talk to somebody who does that work and doesn't actually find it all that horrifying. Ben Spate is the organizing director at Teamsters Local 728. We've reported on their activities in the past. And here's Ben. So we want to start off with the port truck drivers. On our last episode of Belabored, we had a clip from a California port truck driver who was on strike. But you've also been having some success organizing the port truckers in Savannah. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the grievances at the port of Savannah and how that organizing is going? Port drivers in Savannah, which there's around 2,000 or so uh, drivers uh, operating in and out of Savannah hauling containers, uh, are raising the same issues as port drivers around the country are. In Savannah, these workers have been engaging in uh, work stoppages and strikes for uh, many years and have always found difficulty developing a strategy that really goes to the root uh, of the exploitation of drivers and the root of their of their issues stem from their misclassification as independent contractors when in fact they're controlled as employees and what we're seeing in, in Savannah is a, a really a movement that touches on many of the values and themes of the civil rights movement about equal access to the law. When is a worker a worker, and what types of workers should be excluded from, well, the right to organize? Uh, And as you've covered before, folks that are misclassified as independent contractors, and particularly at such a critical point uh, in the global supply chain like America's ports, are locked out of any process um, not only to engage in collective bargaining, but also excluded from protections from workers' comp, unemployment insurance, and uh, a whole myriad of other labor protections. And so uh, these folks have, um, uh, along with the L.A. strike that happened that you covered, uh, the drivers in Savannah uh, took their case to the Georgia Port Authority and attempted to serve a letter on the executive director of the Georgia Port Authority who's appointed by our governor, uh, Nathan Deal, Republican, and instead of, of receiving the drivers, uh, the Georgia Port Authority elected to release or to sick, you know, two dozen Georgia Port Authority police officers on the drivers and refused to um, to meet with them. Uh, so what we decided to do is we basically blocked the driveway entering the Georgia Port Authority's headquarters, and we did a uh, occupy-like call response uh, reading of the letter, basically calling out the Port Authority for meeting with all other vested stakeholders at the port, including trucking company executives, mm-hmm. uh, but refusing to meet with the truck drivers that ensure that that port is operating. I think it's emblematic of the fact uh, there's this old saying that if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're on the menu. Uh, and port drivers have been on the menu for 30 years since truck and jeep deregulation. This port authority does not have any uh, means to hear the drivers. They have no interest in hearing the drivers. There's no public hearings or ways for the drivers to air their grievances, even though this is a state agency. 
And this agency oversees the entire port, meets with all the other vessel stakeholders, including the longshoremen, uh, but does not recognize port drivers. Uh, and uh, so we stage another demonstration. And, and it's just really the beginning uh, of Savannah Port Drivers' efforts to be recognized as employees and have the right to organize. Recently, also closer to Atlanta, you guys won a kind of significant victory in, in DeKalb County getting a, a law change so that some of the public employees there could organize. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened and the, I mean, the broader issue of workers in some states, public workers in some states not having collective bargaining rights? So I think that the Harris v. Quinn decision and the ongoing discussion of collective bargaining rights and debate around the country for public sector workers is really a critical discussion for the future of the labor movement. But when we look at the South, for instance, you know, the Memphis sanitation workers in, ni- in 1968, well, they didn't have collective bargaining rights, and they didn't have a right to strike. But uh, they engaged in a historic uh, struggle and were willing to an, 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 an act of civil disobedience by 1,300 sanitation workers. And full circle, 45 uh, years uh, some odd later, in DeKalb County, in Georgia, uh, the sanitation workers uh, who work for DeKalb County also don't have collective bargaining rights, but that didn't stop them from forming an organization that addressed their interest and uh, attempts to provide a voice for them. So these drivers and uh, collection workers waged a, a historic campaign to be recognized as a union, and after a series of mobilizations uh, directed at the county commission, uh, in October of last year, we're finally recognized as a union. Um, we're engaged in meet and confer uh, with the county where we sit down once a month and a committee of sanitation workers address everything from the cost of their health insurance and, and the status of their pension to workplace conditions, uh, wages, and discipline. The point is, is that you know, even in places where, uh, and in particular in the South, where workers in a right-to-work state without collective bargaining rights for public sector workers, it's not all doom and gloom. The fact is is that workers, even in the South, even with all these legal impediments, even with a, a political climate uh, that is not in their favor, even with the limited resources, continue to come to our local union and to the Teamsters and others to seek to be organized. There's a high demand amongst workers, um, as we talked about, amongst port drivers who are prohibited from the right to organize, as independent contractors, to sanitation workers who work in the public sector in the states like Georgia, they want to organize. And I think it's, just, it's our challenge as a labor movement to develop models of organizing that allows them to join our union uh, and to provide them a voice that they hadn't had uh, before. They've been fighting for a union uh, in DeKalb County for the sanitation workers for over 40 years. And this was uh, a massive victory um, that allowed uh, up to 450 sanitation workers to join our union. Uh, and we're in the process. The last two years, uh, we have been able to achieve wage increases. They hadn't got raise, uh, raises for eight or nine years prior to that. We've been able to get workers' jobs back who were injured on the job. Uh, and so we've been able to make some modest uh, improvements. But I think the, the biggest thing that has been uh, achieved uh, is that the workers were able to finally get recognition, which is ultimately what was the demand of the Memphis sanitation workers in 1968. So there's a legacy of struggle, both for civil rights and workers' rights, that continues in the South. Uh, and really what's needed is additional resources and support to respond to the demand of workers in the South to organize. Contrary to the myth that workers in the South uh, don't want to form a union or don't want to fight and don't want to build a movement for uh, social and economic justice, it's, it's, it's quite the opposite. Um, workers are calling our local union every day, uh, seeking to be organized, and it's really a challenge for us to be able to meet their calls uh, for assistance. And what we're finding is that workers are forming organizations themselves or taking action themselves without direct guidance from our local because we can't be everywhere at every time. Uh, And so workers at Coca-Cola, as well as the sanitation workers, have um, built very militant, strong committees uh, that are leading their co-workers in these efforts to, uh, to be heard. 
some people might be surprised to hear about such uh, persistence and, and grassroots militancy coming from uh, the South. So I was wondering if you could zoom out a bit and just talk about what it's like to organize in the South. We hear a lot of uh, hand-wringing in the labor movement about how challenging it is to organize the South as if it's some completely different realm of uh, labor politics. How different do you think it is really uh, as an organizer? And what do you think are some things about labor culture or just labor policy in the South that make the political climate uh, unique? Um, and, and what kinds of responses have you been getting when you talk to just ordinary rank-and-file workers uh, as an organizer? I think that workers in the South uh, may even be more open to forming a union and organizing uh, for their self-interest compared to elsewhere in the country because the conditions are so acute for them and their families. And, you know, when you have a state like Georgia that has one of the highest poverty rates in the country, that has one of the largest gaps in the rich and poor in cities like Atlanta, uh, has one of the highest foreclosure rates, one of the highest incarceration rates, one of the highest high school dropout rates, workers have no other option but to seek alternatives. And they're coming to us um, asking for assistance. If we're not available, they're self-organizing. And so I think it's contrary to the concept that you know, there's a culture that's anti-union in the South uh, that's, that, that couldn't be more untrue. Uh, what, what is a reality, and what we understand that international and national unions have to contend with, is looking at places like the South where we don't have collective bargaining rights for public sector workers, where there is right-to-work laws, uh, where there is Republican-controlled uh, legislatures and governors. It's not a politically friendly climate, and it never has been, but it's never going to change until we have campaigns of scale uh, and try to build allies and alliances that go far beyond labor uh, that try to build a social and economic justice agenda. Uh, there's always been talk about organizing the South, and there's been fleeting attempts to do so, um, but you're not going to be successful changing a region without the deep commitment that's open-ended and long-term. Uh, and in order to do that, uh, I believe that uh, labor as a whole and some of our international and national unions have to make a critical decision about the allocation of resources and the commitment to, uh, to organize in the South, because so long as the South remains non-union or has the lowest union density compared to the rest of the country, that is going to allow the disparities to only increase uh, and undermine the existing standards in our uh, union strongholds and sort of the bookends of the country. Uh, we can't allow ourselves to be content and thinking that having a strong labor movement uh, in California and the West Coast and New York and along the, uh, in New England is sufficient for us to be able to have the kind of power uh, that is necessary to turn our economy around uh, and to make the labor movement a fighting force for working people again. And the only way to do that is to look strategically at areas of the South that we can really focus and have the greatest impact uh, for our resources. And I think places like uh, ports in Savannah uh, and throughout the southeast are critical choke points in the economy where workers have uh, an extraordinary amount of power, particularly the port drivers, if we are able to create uh, kinds of organizations that they can express and leverage their own interest uh, against their, the myriad of employers and other vested interests. And also looking at uh, key strategic companies in the south that have uh, been able to uh, use that climate to build an atmosphere uh, that is uh, non-union, uh, and Coca-Cola is an excellent example of that. You know, with their headquarters in Atlanta, many of your listeners may not be aware, but Coca-Cola recently sponsored by giving a considerable uh, amount of real estate to uh, the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, which is in downtown Atlanta, not coincidentally right next door to the World of Coke. Uh, and as I referenced earlier. Uh, you know, in 1968, Dr. King joined with the Memphis sanitation workers uh, in their historic strike. In one of his last speeches, in fact, his last speech, he called for a boycott of Coca-Cola for its discrimina uh, discrimination uh, in employment practices. But uh, it's a company that has been able to whitewash its own history when it involves civil and human rights, sponsors the National Center for the Civil and Human Rights, but engages in unfair labor practices and targeting of African-American worker leaders in their own hometown, and in fact, holds captive audience meetings bragging and boasting about the fact that the South is non-union. This is a company that 
close to or over 40% of its employees nationwide are in the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and have union contracts. And so making a decision to shift uh, and, and get a majority uh, status density within a company like Coca-Cola by focusing in the South uh, could be a major turning point for labor. Um, and I think that uh, we have seen uh, a lot of interest in that uh, from around the country as we looked at the UAW election in Chattanooga. People around the world were seeing that as a sort of a litmus test for what the potential for organizing is uh, in the South. And uh, there's a lot more opportunities uh, than one auto plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee, for us to be able to uh, make a statement about our potential to grow in the South. Yeah, let's hope so. Uh, let's uh, let's elaborate a little bit on uh, some of the tactics that uh, they've used to bust unions or put pressure on workers. Uh, we're going to hear a clip now from a captive audience meeting of Coca-Cola distribution workers. In the Midwest. West Coast, we have, we have them in California, Washington, Oregon. But if you drew a line across the U.S. and kind of said Virginia and over, was the middle the dividing line? No. No, no unions in Texas? No representative employees in Georgia, none in Florida. Do you know why that is? Uh, well, one, it's you know it's historical. In a lot of facilities, I'll take New York for example. That that Coke bottling plant has been represented. I want to say for over 75 years. So employees that went to work there today, they don't have a choice. So if they want a job with Coke New York, they either accept being a union member and pay dues and follow the contract, or they don't get the job. It's just historically the union's always been there. They didn't. It's not like the group there today voted the union in. It's always been there. And that's been most of our facilities. The unions have been around for 50, 60, 75 years. I think at one facility, we found a copy of the contract going back to like the 1930s or something. Mm-hmm. So, so is there any possible way we can, uh, to, can, to, can talk with them or have somebody from there come down here and talk to them about it? I mean, we don't typically do that, but their experience is going to be very different because what, what happens in New York and what their contract says and what they deal with day-to-day has no bearing on what South Metro would do day-to-day. Two different, two different situations, right? But what you can see is that, when, you know how we have an engagement survey every, every two years? Every employee of a company, whether you're union or non-union, takes the survey. The survey is te- technically a temperature of how engaged the employees are and how they feel. And statistically, based on that survey, and this is a fact, the employees that are on a non-union facility are much more engaged and happier than the employees in the facility. Because they have a very rigid contract. They have to follow everything by the book because that's how the contract works. To Brian's point, four years ago it was really, really bad. It's getting better. Mm -hmm. They made some changes as to the structure of the HERE team so that we could give employees better attention. But an employee's issue to open a case has to be close to the end. To Bobby's point, you might not hear what exactly you want to hear, but they have to give you an answer that they looked into it, they investigated it, they addressed it. At some point. Yes. But what I was wondering is, is in contrast to that idea, you were saying that an individual is supposed to go to their supervisor and discuss with their supervisor on an individual level, and should they not get the answer that they're looking for, they're not getting the proper attention, and you go up the channels until eventually you get to the HERE team, but it would seem that if you call the HERE team as an individual and you have to wait all of this time to get a response, it would be more beneficial to skip all of that and come together as a team like he was saying on some guy in the back, he was like, I feel this way, you feel this way, you feel this way, let's come together to our supervisor. One, it seems like the majority would get more done than you being an individual by yourself, talking about the exact same issue that he's having, but you're calling on this day, he's calling on that day, and y'all are both waiting a month for the same response. So I'm hoping that Talk to us a little bit about what we just heard there. Well, what you heard is, is actually taken from a, um, an audio clip that's over an hour long recorded by um, Coca-Cola workers in College Park, Georgia, which is just south of Atlanta, um, at a facility called South Metro, which is a distribution center. And these are warehouse workers that uh, were forced into a mandatory anti-union meeting. Uh, Coca-Cola has a very sophisticated and well-resourced uh, labor relations department. And uh, these folks have, are boasting about the fact that in the last five years, no Coca-Cola worker in the country has formed a new union. 
and uh, it was this meeting was called in response to workers circulating a petition uh, to not be disciplined when they used uh, paid time off. Uh, and and the drivers circulated the petition uh, saying they wanted air conditioning in the cabs of their trucks and they wanted to be able to wear uh, uh, uniforms that didn't uh, cause them to be nauseous and faint when they're out there delivering the product to convenience stores and grocery stores. Uh, and so rather than address the workers' issues, uh, Coca-Cola, as I mentioned earlier, uh, which is a has you know significant union density with the Teamsters nationwide, uh, flies in their uh, internal union busters to hold these meetings, uh, and they're very effective. Uh, what we have learned, uh, what we can see and hear in this audio, is that workers aren't having it, uh, and instead of chasing the rabbit about uh, defending uh, the lie or trying to explain or debunk the lies that the company says about the Teamsters Union, really put the company uh, um, uh, against the wall by having them respond uh, to the workers' uh, issues. And, and the worker asked, uh, well, we have tried to uh, work within the existing channels of the company uh, to be heard, uh, and every time we try to come together with our coworkers, we're seen as a threat uh, and we're not listened to. Uh, and the company's response is, we don't want to meet with workers as a group. We'll meet with them individually. Uh, and then the workers' response, well, all of our issues are the same. Uh, why won't you meet with us as a group? And the company understands a very basic elementary lesson that anybody involved in any social movement has already understands, that people in power will seek to divide workers uh, by not allowing them uh, to have a, a collective voice uh, and seeks to uh, undermine uh, workers' power by addressing workers on a case-by-case, individual basis. And that's the opposite of what our, our power comes from. Uh, it's uh, Coca-Cola, uh, and working at Coca-Cola non-union, your best case uh, is uh, the process of individual begging. And individual begging uh, allows uh, all the leverage in the hands of the company to either do you a favor um, or tell you they'll get back with you, or simply tell you no. Because if they make a decision to say they're not going to discipline you for using a personal day, then that would have to be a decision that, that everybody would be impacted by. So, I mean, workers have attempted to go through company channels to resolve their issues, and as many of your listeners already know, that's just a dead end for them. Unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, when you organize a group of 200 some odd workers at Coca-Cola, uh, with a, uh, an employer that's willing to spare no expense in fighting the workers and is willing to break the law in the face of the National Labor Relations Act and is willing to do whatever it takes to keep workers from organizing, including bribery, uh, um, threats, firing workers. Uh, Coca-Cola is the best at what they do. And what, I think what's impressive about this audio and, and the series of captive audience meetings that our locals has obtained from workers who have been engaged in organizing is that uh, workers have new tools uh, uh, to assist them in both uh, pushing back on their employer's campaign and also exposing uh, the company's practices behind closed doors. Because, you know, I, I know many in the progressive community and liberals and others that, that, uh, that, uh, that comment on Coca-Cola's media campaigns. I mean, their slogan is open happiness. You know, they'll, they'll buy expensive advertisements in the Super Bowl, uh, and they'll they'll make statements in support of uh, LGBT rights. Uh, they'll have commercials that are multilingual. Um, uh, they'll have uh, global workplace rights policies. But in fact, their practice in their own backyard couldn't be further uh, from the respect of human rights. Uh, and these workers uh, in this meeting uh, are, are are calling them out for it. Uh, in fact, the, the 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 next week after these captive audience meetings, a group of Coca-Cola workers. Uh, uh, on, a, on the night shift at the same facility and the warehouse workers, uh, 14 of 17 workers parked their uh, pallet jacks and forklifts and refused to return back to work for several hours and, and called, their, um, uh, called upon their plant manager to return to the distribution center uh, after he already returned home, woke him up, had him come back to the facility, uh, they had a, uh, a series of demands that they wanted to have addressed, including be paid fairly for all hours that they work and safe work conditions. And the plant manager refused to meet with them as a group in line with the wrap of this captive audience meeting, offered only to meet with the workers individually. The workers refused. 
and the plant manager refused to take their demand letter. A little time passed, the workers returned back to work, there was no discipline involved. And the next day, Coca-Cola sent in some of their regional managers to surveil workers and to walk around and uh, to, to, uh, to, uh, to create a sense of that they're being watched and the, and the atmosphere of anxiety and fear that these companies prey upon and create in order to undermine efforts to, to organize. But it, it's just a testament that even though these workers aren't moving immediately towards a, a recognition campaign, they're operating uh, collectively with militancy, with open union support, uh, and it's absolutely driving this company crazy. Uh, they expect us uh, and the workers to ask for an NRB election quickly, but what these workers are doing is that they're experiencing the full force of the company's campaign, and they're persevering uh, through that. And I think it's just a reflection of the fact that workers in the South and, and elsewhere are willing to do a tremendous amount of hard work in order to build a supermajority support, in order to show open uh, union support inside the plant, and to really push the company back. And, uh, and so that's what that audio captures. And now as more and more workers have access to smartphones, they can record and capture these company meetings that happen behind closed doors. And I think that many of your uh, listeners and uh, the general public at large uh, hasn't set through, in fact, many of our members uh, ha- have not ever set through a mandatory anti-union meeting in their lives. Uh, they don't uh, know the kind of pressure that is put on workers when they attempt to organize uh, and just the outright lies uh, and misinformation that is put in these meetings. Um, the basic framework for Coca-Cola's anti-union campaign uh, is follows the acronym of TIPS, which stands for Threats, Interrogations, Promises, and Surveillance. And no company that I've personally dealt with in 14 years of organizing is better at it than Coca-Cola. And it's really a shame on them for their uh, record or their, their narrative uh, of being uh, a company that um, supports social justice and equality by their donations and contributions to HBCUs, to nonprofit organizations, to, as I mentioned earlier, the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Uh, it's really a smokescreen for their actual practices, both here and abroad. Just uh, tell us quickly what the status of that campaign is now. Uh, you know, I, I think this audio is fairly recent, so what's going on with those workers and what are the next steps? Workers are continuing to circulate their issue petition and are planning a time to, uh, to deliver that petition to their, uh, to their management. Uh, they're, they're continuing to build a list of supporters. Uh, they're meeting uh, on their own um, outside of the workplace to talk about um, uh, you know, how to uh, put demands on the company and uh, to educate themselves about collective bargaining and, and, and the Teamsters Union. It's really testament to the fact as as the Smithfield workers in North Carolina, in order to win in the South and anywhere, we need to be able to have an open-ended approach and understand there's no quick fix. There's no, there's no shortcut to justice. Having an expedited election is favorable in some campaigns and in others, what you need is to have deep uh, worker commitment, strong representative committees, a clear understanding of what the company's campaign is about. Uh, and a willingness to engage in militant uh, direct action on the shop floor to be successful. Uh, And uh, that just requires us to be better organizers, uh, to allow workers to determine, uh, in many cases, their own pace, for them to identify their issues, for them to select respected uh, coworkers that can lead their efforts. Many workers want to have these issues resolved overnight, but as they begin to engage in struggles with a, a very a well-resourced opponent like Coca-Cola, they understand that it is a long struggle. Uh, and, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, we have um, a great deal of op- optimism and confidence that these workers are going to ultimately prevail and, and win union recognition. And when they do so, they're going to be uh, an incredibly strong unit that's going to get a strong contract um, because they overcame immense odds uh, to get there. Uh, and so uh, it is, it's, it's, it's a great lesson uh, for what can be achieved, and, and uh, we know that there, we don't have any expectations that it's going to be turned around overnight. But those workers, as we speak, uh, are engaged in, in you know, circulating issue petitions and talking to their coworkers, collecting contact information, uh, meeting on their own, and, and, uh, and putting demands on their boss. So it actually seems like there's 
a lot of exciting progressive motion happening in the South these days, um, from the Dream Defenders in Florida to the Moral Mondays movement, which has started in North Carolina and is spreading south. Um, and a lot of it is, as you've mentioned, expressly tied to the, the civil rights history. Can you talk about more about the connections between labor organizing in the South and this racial justice organizing? I think that the, you know, when I mentioned all the different conditions of working people in the South, all the different overlapping and intersecting forms of oppression that happen, both from our high incarceration rates to the high number of foreclosures to the gap between the rich and poor and metropolitan centers like Atlanta. And there's no coincidence that, you know, uh, Georgia continues to rank at the bottom of union density, and that holds true for uh, other states in our region. I think that we just workers have really reached a crossroads as they see expansive development and uh, industries uh, moving to the south, like the auto industry and others. Um, uh, growth in, in places like uh, the port of Savannah, with the uh, recent appropriations to deepen the Savannah Harbor, they're seeing tremendous economic investment in the south throughout the region. Uh, but they're not uh, then in turn seeing uh, the economic benefit for them and their families. And I think that there's a historical memory, particularly amongst black workers in the South, uh, that the fight for uh, workplace justice is connected to a concept of justice in the community. Uh, and that in order to really achieve social justice, they're going to have to have justice in the workplace. They're going to have to have the ability uh, to afford to provide for their families as well as um, uh, the ability not to have their vote suppressed, as well as their ability to um, uh, receive Medicaid, uh, as well as their ability not to have to be uh, locked up in prison, uh, as well as their ability not to have predatory lenders put them uh, on the brink of foreclosure uh, or to kick them out of their house. Uh, and so there's a lot of intersecting conditions that I think workers in the South are looking for new ways, uh, and also harkening back to um, um, sort of a movement history of building broad coalitions that uh, put uh, demands on the state and put demands on um, the right-wing governments uh, from North Carolina to Georgia and elsewhere, uh, and also engaging in the same kind of militant tactics um, that has been a tradition uh, in movements for social and economic justice in the South. Civil disobedience is, is no longer something that uh, is a thing of the past, but has been reinvigorated with new energy. And what was, you know, as I mentioned before, when Coca-Cola workers parked their pallet jacks to forklifts uh, for six hours, they're engaging in a form of civil disobedience. And as well as we see at state houses, both in North Carolina and Georgia and elsewhere, uh, where people are sending in, dem- demanding the expansion of Medicaid, uh, uh, demanding that their their uh, the right to vote is protected, and so as we're seeing trends on a national level that thinks that that, uh, that you know from the Supreme Court arguing that somehow the South has passed its legacy of uh, of, of racial injustice, we're seeing uh, in fact and working people are forming much broader coalitions than maybe even was the case during the um, or, you know early part of the civil rights movement, uh, and so we are very inspired by what's happening in North Carolina with the More Monday movement. Also, um, how the Fight for 15 campaign or the Fast Food 4 campaign has also taken um, and gotten a lot of traction in the South, including uh, cities like Atlanta. Uh, and so we're really encouraged that these are, are, are hopeful signs. Uh, but uh, I would urge our friends throughout labor to um, look at the South not just from afar, uh, but how uh, our organizations as a whole uh, can commit to turning the, uh, the South around because uh, I really do believe that uh, as long as we allow the South uh, to uh, to be the bottom and to continue to drive standards down, that it undermines all of our contracts and undermines all of our standards elsewhere in the country. And I think it's indispensable for us uh, to look at the South not just for inspiration, uh, but for as a call to uh, assist in every possible way and devoting the resources and, and, and the people to help turn the South around. We, we certainly need all the friends and allies we can get uh, fighting for uh, justice in the South. Uh, and that certainly hasn't changed, and uh, that certainly was the case uh, during the Civil Rights Movement and prior to, and, it, and it's, it's the case today. In terms of how you're sort of building on that, like you said, a long uh, legacy of uh, social struggle uh, within uh, the labor movement in the South. Uh, in terms of how you're uh, reorienting that towards 
the sort of new demographic changes that are arising in the South. Could you talk about how the shifting uh, racial immigration um, and just uh, social uh, you know, demographics of that region have kind of influenced your organizing and given you perhaps new fodder to tap into new alliances or to look at different issues? Uh, a couple years ago, uh, the Georgia legislature with their friends and allies, like Senate Bill 469, that uh, attempted to make acts of civil disobedience uh, an, an aggravated misdemeanor and to criminalize dissent in a really unprecedented way. They also, also uh, attempted to restrict uh, picketing uh, outside of a private residence, um, for instance, a, a CEO or corporate executive, and tried to um, insert having to reauthorize union membership annually. You know, that fight uh, actually uh, enabled labor to build a, an incredibly broad coalition that, you know, we need to continue to expand upon, but it actually included uh, members of the Georgia Tea Party to folks that are involved in the Georgia Latino Alliance for Human Rights. Uh, so at, at, a meet, at, a, at a massive rally that we had outside of the Georgia State Capitol when that bill was introduced, we had young activists who came out as undocumented and unafraid, uh, as well as building trades members, uh, as well as uh, folks from the Occupy movement uh, that were all speaking uh, in, a, in a unified coalition uh, against uh, the attacks on free speech and against the attacks on uh, workers' uh, right to organize. And, and so we defeated that bill, and Georgia every year continues to propose similar legislation uh, and there uh, likewise continues to be a coalition that comes around that to push back on it. And I think it's just a testament that we can uh, push the envelope and we have to push the envelope within our own movement. Uh, I'm very proud to see our uh, progressive sectors of the uh, labor movement in Georgia and Atlanta in particular come out and act as marshals for immigrants' rights marches in Atlanta. Uh, standing with a dynamic uh, and incredible uh, movement of immigrant workers that are demanding the, the end to deportations. No coincidence that private prison corporations have uh, have um, established a strong foothold and anchor in the South. Uh, we have uh, a significant number of private uh, immigrant detention centers uh, and um, uh, with organizations like GLAR, the Georgia Latino Alliance for Human Rights, who has reached out to labor and built you know, um, uh, campaigns that have included uh, uh, labor union members and uh, uh, with labor support. And really, principally, our, our objective with that uh, is to, uh, to, be the, uh, to be true allies, uh, to get the back of the immigrants' rights movement at their behest um, and as they see fit, uh, and even acting as marshals at a, at a march, I think, is a, uh, not just a symbolic act of solidarity, but is a real way of acting as a buffer on a particularly um, uh, exploited uh, group of folks. And, uh, you know, the case around um, uh, immigrant workers in the South is the same case that we're making about working people in the South at large, and that is that the only way to address the inherent disparities in capitalism uh, is to try to eliminate those disparities by raising everybody up instead of allowing them to uh, divide us and allow uh, a, a subgroup of people to be hyper-exploited. What we need to do is, is, is raise the standard and say that there's nowhere that you can go. Uh, and, and, and because you call somebody an independent contractor or because a person, you're alleging a person doesn't have status under the law or that they're undocumented, uh, that that permits you um, uh, to get away with uh, not allowing them to have equal protection under the law. Uh, and so it's really challenging the basic values that this country uh, espouses, and that is uh, who is a worker, who should have a right to free speech, who should have a right to organize. Uh, and I think what the, the working people in the South are saying with broad consensus is, is that everybody should. All workers in this country regardless of what an employer may call them, or regardless of what their status is to the state, uh, ought to have the right uh, to uh, collectively assert their interests. And um, I'm very proud to see, uh, not, you know, not in, in huge numbers, um, uh, the labor movement coming out in support of immigration reform uh, or to the, the call to stop deportations, but a, a significant minority of, uh, of unions, including um, 
the local painters union and the IUPAT, uh, the Teamsters, the UFCW, SCIU, uh, and others that are, are, are leading that way and really acting as a progressive pole within the, uh, the, the Georgia labor movement. And a lot of that energy has also come from uh, worker centers who are doing independent organizing and uh, these other sort of uh, forms of labor organizing that are kind of, you know, say, mobilizing domestic workers and stuff, I remember. That's right. Yeah. National Domestic Workers Alliance has a Atlanta um, uh, uh, chapter, and you know, there's a long tradition of domestic workers in Atlanta, including uh, in, in the late 19th century of black domestic workers that went on strike in Atlanta and uh, in the in 1960s and 70s and also prior to in the post-war period of domestic workers in Atlanta organizing. Uh, and they follow in that tradition. We know of the worker centers and the, and, and, and the guest workers campaigns that came out of uh, Louisiana and elsewhere. I'm really proud of the UAW's efforts in, uh, in Nissan and Mississippi, reaching out to uh, student allies and really building a, uh, a broad uh, uh, campaign around worker justice um, in the auto plants. Um, there's there's tremendous opportunities for us here. I mean, my first exposure to the labor movement in the South, outside of being fired from my own job uh, when I was 18 years old uh, at my university, was going to the Charleston Five demonstrations uh, in Columbia, South Carolina, uh, and the historic struggle of the ILA and Ken Riley. And that sort of there, there it hasn't there hasn't been periods where workers in the South haven't been fighting back. There's just been challenges with getting the resources um, needed to be successful. That there's been a continuous effort uh, of workers in the South to find whatever means they can, whether or not they have a process laid out to them by law. Workers have sought to form uh, whatever kind of organizations they can to be heard. As you have reported in your uh, program before. If independent contractors came together and tried to deal with their trucking companies as a group, well, um, they will be sued under antitrust laws because uh, they're considered independent businesses and they're fixed in prices. I mean, just totally contrary to our concept of, uh, of, of who, you know, who a worker is and, and what, what rights they have to uh, assert their economic interests. I know Sarah Jaffe has covered workers at the Glock manufacturing plant in Smyrna, Georgia, right outside Atlanta, who are largely uh, classified as temporary workers. So wherever you see loopholes in labor protection and new models to create casualized contingent workers, I mean, there's probably no, these corporations uh, view the South as a fertile uh, ground for them to experiment and, and, and try to evade the law and workers' rights. And every time that they do that, um, workers consistently in the South try to find ways to, to push back on that. And that's what's the encouraging sign. It's not all doom and gloom. Workers have a history of struggle. Uh, they have had su- recent successes of you know, organizing victories, like our decaf sanitation workers. They have a long history of, of fighting for recognition, like the Savannah Port drivers. They're dealing with immense um, uh, corporate employers uh, that have uh, immense resources, like Coca-Cola, and are pushing back. They're building broad coalitions like what we see in more Monday in North Carolina. Uh, they're building alternative um, um, avenues for uh, uh, and organizations um, uh, and from New Orleans to Miami. Um, and uh, it's really um, important to take note of that uh, and not look at the South as a, uh, as a black hole uh, for labor, but look at it as potentially uh, what could be our turning point if we make the commitment uh, uh, to turn it around and to put uh, boots on the ground and resources down in the South so that we can have more organizers, more support, and create a culture of organizing in the South that really gets to buy in from existing uh, unions uh, and allows us to uh, reach out outside of what may be some of our comfort zones into allies like the Immigrants' Rights Movement, which is by definition a workers' rights movement, an issue about uh, the dignity of all people, uh, and uh, I think that there's a lot that we can uh, see in the South as, uh, as hopeful signs for the future of labor. And that was Ben Spate speaking to us from Oakland, and he is the organizing director for Teamsters Local 728 in Georgia. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at thecentmagazine.org. And now it's time for 
Arg! I wish I'd written that. Uh, so we will bring you our picks for the week of stories that we wish we'd written but did not. My pick for the week is in Foreign Policy magazine. It is called It's Like Jail Here, Watching the World Cup Finals in the Labor Camps of Qatar. It's by Priyanka Motaparthi, and it's not a traditional piece about you know any particular union struggle or anything like that. Um, uh, Qatar's situation is quite different. You know, hundreds of thousands of migrant workers have uh, been imported into the country, um, into this tiny Gulf nation, uh, to work uh, for extremely low wages. Most of them are from South Asia, and they labor under this thing called the kafala system. And the kafala system is essentially um, an age-old regime. Regime of basically indentured servitude. Uh, they have no freedom of movement. They are not allowed to switch employers at will. And if they want to leave the country and go back to the country that they came from, they actually need their employer's permission to actually exit the country. So as you can imagine, this leads to some pretty uh, complex and devastating uh, situations involving uh, impoverished migrant workers being abused, exploited, and often abandoned uh, in all sorts of ways. So. Uh, um, what this piece does is it actually um, spends some time inside the labor camp of some construction workers. Uh, they're mostly, again, from South Asia, from countries like Nepal and Bangladesh. And uh, they are some of the huge migrant workforce that makes up the vast majority of Qatar's population. And they are part of this, you know, big uh, phalanx of workers that is preparing Qatar for the 2022 World Cup. Um, that World Cup has actually, uh, you know, been fairly controversial due to various uh, corruption scandals surrounding how Qatar actually got to the World Cup. You know, playing soccer in, you know, 120 degree heat uh, seems to you know, raise some interesting issues about how they got that contract in the first place. But nonetheless, the workers are there. They have been building these stadiums, and they are dying. They are dying in droves. They're dying of things like cardiac arrest uh, from fall injuries. Um, they're suffering heat stroke at massive. Uh, levels and uh, often they don't even have you know adequate food um, you know and they're basically forced to live in squalor many times um, and moreover if they have any grievances against their employer uh, they basically have virtually no legal recourse because they're completely disenfranchised as migrants um, but the piece is interesting because it actually spends some time talking to these workers and it's actually set up around um, the, the workers gathering at a camp for a special screening of the art Argentina versus Germany World Cup game, and you actually get some insight into what it's like to spend a day in the life of one of these uh, one of these guys. So um, it's really interesting to get a personal perspective. And she also ends with an important note, which is to say that you know while many people are calling for a boycott of Qatar, or a rerun of the vote, and you know calling for it to be called off, uh, no matter quote no matter where the first ball is kicked off in 22. 2022, workers in the world's richest country will continue to suffer serious abuses of their rights unless the Qatari government follows through on its promises of reform. Moving the tournament alone will not save their lives, nor will it protect them from the dangers and exploitation that many currently face. So uh, with all the hardships that have been exposed around the world due to the World Cup preparations, it's important to remember that these struggles are ongoing and they go much further than a single sporting spectacle. So we talked a lot about organizing in the South on today's podcast, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about organizing the South. Um, the piece I wish I'd written this week, or rather last week, is by friend of the podcast Seth Fried Wessler at NBC News, and it's titled, What's Making These Selma, Alabama Auto Parts Workers So Sick? As we mentioned before, the, the civil rights history that ties in with this labor, with labor history in the South, um, Selma, Alabama is a rather famous location in the civil rights struggle. And now there is a plant there that makes foam cushions for Hyundai car seats and headrests. There are about 90 hourly workers who work at this plant, and several of them have been having breathing problems. Um, they've also been trying to organize with the United Auto Workers, partly to get some medical protections, safety protections, and to try to get the company to come to the table and admit that there are some problems. Seth talks to several of the workers down there and actually facilitates them getting tested by scientists at Yale who specialize in this particular kind of plastics inhalation and found that, yeah, several of them, certainly more than uh, coincidence, had these breathing problems. Of course, the plant says that they've tested the place, that it's 
not a problem, that everything's fine. This connects to an ongoing issue, which is that OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, has not enough inspectors to go around to actually inspect plants that have safety or health concerns. So what happens is unless workers call and complain, and even when workers call and complain, it takes quite a long time to get inspectors to come out and an even longer time to actually get a judgment against a plant. So meanwhile, the workers are seeking to organize. They are part of the UAW's big push in the South. And as we go forward on this story, we'll see what happens with the union election, but also It's worth noting, once again, one of the many reasons that workers actually seek to organize in the first place is they really want to protect their basic health. These people don't want their jobs to go away. They don't want to not work. They want to be able to continue to breathe. In many cases, they want to be able to continue to work. Um, We will put links to this piece as everything that we've talked about today, including the full-length audio of the captive audience meeting at Coca-Cola, should you want to be that horrified, up at the Descent Magazine website. As always, you can reach us at hashtag belabored, at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Tell us your comments. Do you live in the South? Are you organizing in the South? Would you like to organize in the South? Let us know. Share your stories. And uh, we will be back in two weeks. This life is hard. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.